blessed Christmas. May all of the eternal salvation that Jesus came from heaven to bring to earth be yours and your families as you celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining people all across the world for Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Learn more about Leading the Way and Dr. Youssef at ltw.org. Well, you would have to agree that social media has made a huge difference in life. You can now immediately be part of most any event in most any part of the world simply by opening an app or a browser right there on your phone or your tablet. Okay, so let's imagine that if that first Christmas happened when people could all join in like we do today, we might hear reflections from Joseph telling a viral story about the many events. Mary would possibly tell how her difficult social situation has given her hope and how she feels the heavy responsibility of raising the promised one, influencing generations. But now the question, what did Jesus think and feel about that first Christmas? Well, on this episode of Leading the Way, look with Dr. Youssef at Hebrews chapter 10, where we're able to get a glimpse at Jesus' perspective on the nativity. In this chapter, Jesus reflects with a few simple words, saying, I have come to do your will, O God. Listen with me now to this powerful Christmas message from pastor and international Bible teacher, Dr. Michael Youssef. Everybody has their own idea of how they feel about Christmas. Some people would say it represents stressful time. Others would say, well, it represents uh, disappointment or even anger at the fact that we now, the shops, begin to celebrate Christmas before Halloween. Others will be disappointed at the commercialization and all of that stuff. To some, it represents loneliness and grief and sorrow and sad memories and even depression at times. Still to others, Christmas represents what it really is. God became man. God came to earth. God took on human flesh. God born in a manger to set us free from sin and guilt. God came to die and rise again so that He may assure us of eternal life with Him in heaven. And the list could go on. But even if I would go and ask the original cast of characters on the first Christmas day, the original cast, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the Magi's, they would all give you different accounts from their point of view what Christmas has meant to them, that first Christmas. Mary, no doubt, would have talked about the original puzzlement and bewilderment of how she's pregnant has never been near a man. She would have told us about the enormous relief and the comfort and the joy when the angel appeared to her and began to explain to her the privilege that she has, which every young woman in Israel would have been waiting for to be the mother of the Messiah. What a relief for her to know that she is pregnant supernaturally by the power of God the Holy Spirit of how she was favored by God to carry the anointed Messiah, His Messiah. She will probably explain to us in details about the elation of the visiting of the shepherds, 
or how she can describe in detail these Persian scientists, these astronomers that came from modern-day Iran, come all the way because they saw that what they saw in the sky was a unique explanation or pronouncement of a birth of a divine king. Or she would probably, with tears flowing down her cheeks, tell us about the horrible massacre that King Herod brought about the babies in Bethlehem and how she and Joseph and baby Jesus took that arduous trick across the desert to become refugees for a time in Egypt so as to escape that massacre. In fact, historians tell us that actually it is the Blessed Virgin Mary who gave all this information to Dr. Luke. And so what we read in the Gospel according to Luke is really basically first-hand information from the Blessed Virgin Mary. Then if you would ask Joseph and say, Joseph, what's that first Christmas represent to you? He would talk about the extreme painful few days. There is no doubt there were painful few days between believing and discovering that Mary was pregnant with that inexplicable pregnancy and the angel appearing to him and telling him this is a supernatural pregnancy, a supernatural birth. He could go into details of the anguish and the confusion and the struggling of those few days that he went through, and that he would talk about the juxtaposition between being convinced of Mary's purity and this miraculous pregnancy. He could tell us about tossing and turning in the middle of the night, night after night after night, sleepless nights, thinking, how am I going to explain this to the town gossips? I come from the Middle East. We have a specialists known as the town gossips. <laughs> no doubt he would have told us about the joy, the joy of seeing and hearing the angel of God appearing to him, telling him of the privilege that he and Mary are going to have to bring up this supernaturally born child. Don't ever forget that back then, every little girl, her dream is to be the mother of the blessed Messiah, because every book of the Old Testament has been telling them ever since you read it the first time in Genesis 3.15, from that day on, in every page of the Old Testament, in every book of the Old Testament, it's telling them the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, and therefore every young woman dream is to be the mother of that Messiah. Back then, the dreams of young girls is not to go to college and get a college degree and, and maybe a career. No, no, no. She wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. But in the final analysis, the most important person that we need to ask what Christmas means to you is the one who's always forgotten at Christmas time. You know who I'm talking about? Jesus. Yes. <laughs> the birthday boy. He's always forgotten. He's always overlooked. And we see Mary, we see Joseph, we see the shepherds, we see the Magi's, we talk about all of that, and we leave out the most important question. Jesus, what does this first Christmas mean to you? What does it mean, not to Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, and the Magi's, but to you? Thankfully, we don't have to come up with an answer thinking what Jesus said, or try to piece bits and pieces of information to come up with something that Jesus, what he thought about his first Christmas. No, the Bible tells us. It gives it to us clearly, spelled out, 
in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10. What does Christmas mean to Jesus? And I'm only going to look at three verses, Hebrews 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. I want to read them to you. Follow with me, please. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, now He's speaking to the Father, He's speaking to His Father, with whom He coexisted before all the worlds, He's speaking to the Father. And I'm going to show you this is a thousand-year-old prophecy that Jesus repeated it, saying it applies to Him. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said to the Father, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. Most people miss this, but if you read in Ezekiel, in Hosea, and all the Old Testament, so God is not pleased with sacrifice. He wants obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice way back in the days of prophet Samuel. God is always looking for obedience. And He becomes fulfilled. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. With burnt offering and sin offering, you're not pleased. Then I said, it's Jesus speaking, here I am, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. I came to do your will, O God. Can you say that sentence with me? I came Beloved, this is the Christmas story according to Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews was quoting Jesus throughout the letter to the Hebrews. He contrasts the Old Testament and New Testament, the Old and the New, the Old and the New. And he would say, in the Old Testament, the offering of sacrifice once a year, it did not remove sin. But the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all removed all sin. A contrast between the old temporary inadequate sacrifice in the temple and the New Testament perfect sacrifice of the perfect sinless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. A contrast between the shadow and the real thing. A contrast between the temporary forgiveness of sins that represented by animal sacrifice. And even high priest sin will have to go in and offer sacrifice for their own sin. But then when Jesus came and He sacrificed Himself on that cross, it was perfect, sinless Lamb of God who died for the sin of everyone who would believe in Him. Christ Jesus did not only have a sense of purpose, secondly, He had a sense of knowledge of who He is. It is one thing to have a noble purpose— even for adults. It's one thing to have a great goal, a dream, and it's a whole different ballgame to fulfill that dream, to accomplish that purpose. Lots of people have wonderful purpose in life. Few realize or fulfill that purpose. Ah, uh, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was born for a purpose. He came with a knowledge of that purpose. He came and He fulfilled that purpose. Why? Because He was both God, man, God, and man. And that is why some of those foolish people who run around saying, all the religion will lead you to God, all the religion will lead you to heaven, are absolutely misleading all the way to hell. Because God said, I have only one way by which you come to me, and that is why God-man, Jesus, is the one and the only one who can save us. 
All the founders of the other religions are dead, 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 and they cannot save you. Listen to me. As man, Jesus died on that cross. As God, He died to pay the infinite, colossal cost necessary for our salvation. No one else could pay that price except Jesus. That is why no one can save you except Jesus, the perfect, sinless man-God. I want to illustrate this. It's a true story about a young Russian soldier in the Russian army in the days of Nicholas I. Because this young man's father is known and a friend of Tsar Nicholas I, they gave him a very important job. They made him to be the paymaster for the army. Very heavy responsibility. He has to make sure that the right amount of money goes to the right soldier every month. But this young man was not up to the task. Not only was not up to the task, but he became addicted to gambling. He first gambled his own money, and then he began to gamble the money of the government that he was entrusted to give to the soldiers for their salaries. Money that was entrusted to him. In due course, he received a notice that Tsar Nicholas I and his aides are coming to audit the books. At that moment, the young man knew he's in deep, deep trouble. And so he went through the books, and he tried to figure out, calculate, how much money did he really take embezzled in order to gamble? When he got in the grip of that addiction, that horrible addiction, he just couldn't help himself and kept embezzling more and more. So he began to count and add up, and there was vast amount of money, vast amount of money. His countenance fell when he looked at the pitiful few rubles in his pocket in comparison to the debt, enormous debt, incalculable debt. Nobody could cover that cost in 20 lifetimes or a hundred lifetimes. As he became overwhelmed with the enormity of the debt, he knew life has been ruined for him. He knew that he is now going to be a disgrace. And not only that, he also is going to disgrace his family. And so he decided that the only way out is to take his own life. He took his revolver and he put it on his desk in front of him. And he put at the bottom of the ledger where the huge amount is, and he wrote that number, and then he wrote something at the bottom, and it went like this. Such huge debt, who can pay it? Such a huge debt. Who could pay it? Then he decided that at the stroke of midnight, he's going to commit suicide. He's going to take his own life. The evening wore off. He fell asleep. And he not only became drowsy, but he really actually went to sleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I, as it was his custom, was making the rounds in the barracks, and he used to do that regularly. And seeing the light, he stopped in and he looked. And as he looked, he saw his friend's son, They recognized him to be sitting, but asleep. He immediately realized what happened. He looked at the numbers. He looked at the ledger. And he looked at the words underneath that huge amount. A great debt. Who can pay? 
suddenly a surge of magnanimity, instead of arresting him, which he wanted to do right away, a surge of magnanimity came into the czar, and he reached out with a pen, and he wrote right underneath those words, Nicholas, Nicholas. And then he slept quietly without the young man seeing him. This young man was sleeping fitfully and suddenly woke up, and he looked at the clock. It's way past midnight. He realized that what he wanted to do, he, he missed, but he went to reach for his revolver to kill himself, and then he saw something that's on that page that was not there before he went to sleep. Under the words that he wrote, such a great debt, who can pay? Nicholas. He knew that was not there before he went to sleep. He was dumbfounded, to say the least. He did not understand how the signature of the great czar came into that page right in front of him. There must have been some mistake, some error. So he went to the safe, and he brought some official papers to see the signature of the czar, and he began to compare it with the signature of the czar on his ledger, and they're identical. It is the signature of the czar. He thought to himself, he said, the czar was here, and I was asleep. He has seen the books. He knows everything, and he forgave me. The young soldier trusted the word of the czar, and sure enough, at the early hours in the morning, some messengers from the palace showed up with the exact amount of money that this young man owed. The czar could and had paid the debt. This is not a perfect illustration to explain what God did on that first Christmas. But He did come from heaven. He did come from heaven to pay the debt that you and I could never pay, the debt that no one, no one other than Jesus the Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, could pay. And He paid with His blood. Some of you perhaps may say, well, Michael, I really I don't feel I owe God anything. I'm not in debt, and I'm not sending that debt to anyone and not to God. What are you talking about? Here's the fact of life. God said, only perfect people can relate to Him. Only perfect people can be with Him in heaven. Only perfect people can be truly saved. And you know, and I know, none of us are perfect. Far from it. Far from it when it comes to me, I can tell you that. We can't even get close to perfection. And if we are on our knees 24-7, or hide in a monastery for all of life, we can never, never, never reach perfection that God is requiring. Beloved, this is a great dilemma, and a dilemma that God Himself had to solve. Only a perfect man can please God the Father. And so Jesus, the one who came from heaven, lived a perfect life, sinless life, so that anyone who may come and hang on to his coattail can make it to heaven. Anyone who come take hold of Jesus, become acceptable and pleasing to God the Father. Anyone who surrender to Jesus will be accepted in heaven. This is the debt that nobody, nobody can pay except Jesus. And that is why 
on that first Christmas, our Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of heaven, took a human body, come to earth, signed on the bottom of the ledger of every life that surrendered to Him, Jesus the Christ. And that signature is with His blood. So you know it's for real and for good and for eternity. Jesus the Christ, He paid such a great debt. Who can pay? Who pays? Who can pay? Only He could pay the debt. Only He could redeem us from sin. Only He could save us from the punishment that is rightfully ours. Only He could deliver us from the consequences of our pride and our rebellion against God. Only He could deliver us from the smugness and the self-satisfaction and the self-worship that has become common religion in America today. And that is why He said to God the Father, sacrifice an offering you did not require, but a body you have prepared for me. I came to do what? Your will, O God. I came to do what? Now, if you're like me, and I ask myself the question as I'm looking at this, can really Jesus be delighted to leave heaven, the splendor of heaven, the glory of heaven, and come to earth to do the will of the Father? Can He really be delighted to come to our miserable earth, sinful world, Can He really be delighted to be the poorest of the poor and the lowest of the low? Could He really be delighted to be born in an animal feeding trough? Could He really be delighted of being whipped with lashes until His skin was torn and spat upon, smacked across the face, wore a crown of thorn, and then His hands and feet were nailed to a cross? Could He really be delighted? And for whom? For good people? No, no, for rebellious people, for evil people, for people who have rejected Him. So the answer is yes, yes. He did not do that reluctantly, begrudgingly, or angrily. No, He did it with joy. He did it with joy because He knew in the 21st century salvation of millions of people is hanging on believing in Him and being eternally saved. He delighted to do the will of the Father and carry out your sentence, your death, and mine. Oh, my friend, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining Till He appeared and the soul felt its worth The three We are the race, a new and 
connect with Dr. Youssef by visiting our YouTube channel, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Find the direct links at ltw.org. Now you can also call and speak with someone at the Ministry Call Center, 866-626-4356. This program is furnished by Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Merry Christmas, everyone.